Did dispensationalism originate with Darby? And should we make a distinction between dispensational thought and dispensationalism? These questions are important, and I have two special guests who are helping me answer them. Stay tuned. This is the Bible Sojourner, where we discuss issues related to the Bible, theology, and culture. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd's Theological Seminary. Shalom and welcome. Thanks for joining. Well, I'm really excited to have with me on Zoom here with a special podcast episode. I have Dr. James Fazio and Dr. Corey Marsh from Southern California Seminary, and I'll have them introduce themselves in just a moment. But I wanted to just really promote the book that they've just finished editing, and we have Discovering Dispensationalism released today, actually, when we're recording this episode. But I suppose since this episode releases tomorrow, then uh, it will be have yesterday that we recorded. But really excited about this work. I've got a chance to read through it and review it, and just really thankful for the work of these gentlemen. And so today we're going to talk about dispensationalism, and we're going to talk about uh, whether it's a novel doctrine invented in the 19th century and kind of how this work uh, facilitates the conversation, as it were. So before we get into that, I'd just like to turn it over to Corey Marsh and James Fazio to have them introduce themselves. So you want to jump in and tell us a little bit about yourselves? Sure, Peter. First of all, thank you for having us on Sojourner's podcast. Uh, you do excellent work on this podcast, so it's definitely our delight to be here with you. So thanks for inviting us. Um, yeah, I am Dr. Corey Marsh. I am the professor of New Testament at Southern California Seminary in El Cajon, California. I also direct our THM program there and our publishing arm, SES Press. Um, I have been a full-time professor at SES for seven years now, I believe. Um, and I also have the privilege of serving as scholar in residence at my local church, which is Revolve Bible Church in San Juan Capistrano. I am married to my high school sweetheart, Shannon. We've been married about 13 years. We live in Mission Viejo. And yeah, that's a little bit about me. Um, I am, I guess, as this podcast will, this this conversation will reveal a, a pretty rabid dispensationalist. Um, so I'm very much looking forward to our conversation today. Great. Yeah. Thanks, Corey. Appreciate that. James, you want to jump in and tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah. James Fazio. I am the academic dean of the Bible and Theology Department here at Southern California Seminary. I've been doing that for uh, about 13 years. And uh, But another interesting uh, fun fact about both uh, Corey and I, we're, we're both graduates of this school. So so this Great. is also our alma mater. Um, and, you know, it is a it is a dispensational school. Um, uh, we have truly appreciated just the approach to scripture, uh, a very uh, exegetical minded school. So although we um, both did our THM uh, work here, um, that included, you know, years of Greek and Hebrew and uh, very intentional exegesis, even though he's, he's gone to the New Testament, I've done, I've gone more toward um, historical theology but, um, you know, we have the same underpinnings of a very exegetical approach to scripture and have appreciated um, all that we've, you know, all, all that we've had both uh, on both sides of the of the classroom, if you will. And so we've been uh, teaching. Uh, I, I'm a professor of biblical studies, so much more general as a dean. I, I'll, I'll float and fill different areas, but um, 
we've been interacting quite a bit over over the New Testament because Corey's our New Testament professor, and that's there's quite a bit of overlap between that and theology. Yeah, that's that's great, and, and obviously we have the great privilege of having both of you on the podcast today, and. The occasion is the release of this new book, Discovering Dispensationalism. And, you know, it's a much needed book. Uh, even as we were talking about before we started recording, this is, this is, this is big in, in a variety of ways. So you want to just tell us uh, what was the reason for writing this book? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the idea behind this book is, is one that we have seen um, challenged, uh, or in fact, perhaps I should say more naively um, just assumed that there is no real history of dispensational thought that precedes John Nelson Darby. Uh, every time I have, uh, and I, I mention his name specifically, obviously his name will come up quite a bit, but um, the past several years that I've been working on this book, even before I've been working on a, um, a PhD in history at Queens University, Belfast, on John Nelson Darby. So I've been doing a tremendous amount of research on his thought and um, and and the development of his thought, which includes, <clears throat> of course, antecedents and um, you know those those who preceded him in terms of a the history of ideas. And it's very clear, of course, the late William Watson, who's also a contributor to this book, uh, has. Um, written an entire book on simply the 17th and 18th century predecessors to dispensationalism called Dispensationalism Before Darby. Uh, but, you know, as as good as that book is, it only goes back a few centuries, uh, which is very appropriately so, but it, it's, it's not, it wasn't a novel idea in the 17th or 18th century either. And it's the kind of thing that we said it needs to be clarified for readers who engage these subjects, especially the extent to which the, um, the, the, the idea has been repeated that dispensationalism was conceived in the mind of John Nelson Darby in the 19th century. And that has usually been done to sort of undermine the doctrine as so, either as an ad hominem attack to, to, to um, disparage Darby himself, or simply an argument for recency to say, you know, it's, it's just only recently conceived, so it's not really worth paying attention to. Yeah, that, that makes uh, perfect sense. Uh, for those listening who aren't exactly familiar with Darby, he's the 19th century uh, advocate of what became known as dispensationalism as a system, and we'll talk more about him in, in a little bit, I'm sure. But I think it's it's common to acknowledge, like you, you mentioned, James, that a lot of people point to Darby as saying, you know, what, dispensational thought or dispensational theology didn't arise um, until Darby and then his subsequent disciples. And so this is a great book uh, giving kind of some credence to the idea that these themes and theological threads were found prior to Darby. Like you said, that's good. Now, I know, Corey, you're obviously very passionate about this subject. You introduced yourself as a rabid dispensationalist. so. I'm sure you have some things to add about why why you think this book will be helpful for people. Yeah, well, you know, I don't want to jump ahead because we might talk about some newer works that have come out uh, later. Um, but just to just to piggyback on what James said, this is a a constant mischaracterization of dispensationalism. That you know, it was it's novel. It was invented uh, with John Nelson Darby or his writings or his followers. Hardly anybody actually traces dispensational thought prior to Darby. 
Um, so James and I have, we have different backgrounds in the sense our, our academic uh, research is different. You know, like, as you mentioned, I'm a professor of New Testament. My PhD is in biblical theology. Um, so I like to connect themes in scripture. Uh, and he's on the historical side of things. So when it came to where John Nelson Darby is placed in the stream of dispensational thought, um, we had a really good collaboration and some some refining of thinking on my own end that I needed as well, um, because some of these some works that are, have come out recently and others beforehand, even dispensationalists themselves sometimes promulgate this error that disp the ideas or positions within dispensationalism, for example, a pre-tribulational rapture position or a distinction between church and Israel um, originate in the mind of someone in the 19th century. Um, and this continues to be promulgated. So it's one of the biggest misconceptions is that that dispensationalism as a whole is new. You know, it's novel. It's cultic. It's, it's called everything under the sun. And what we want to do is, no, we're not we're not making an argument for the system here. It's not a polemic. What we're showing is the historical pedigree of these ideas that were always in church history from the first century and the New Testament onward that would later be codified under the system dispensationalism, which of course doesn't have an official creed or anything like that, but these standard beliefs that are known to be under, you know, the umbrella of dispensational theology, if you will. So that's what the, that's what the need for this book really was, I think, just to piggyback on, again on what James said, um, just to show the historical pedigree of these ideas, you know, that we have uh, not just biblical support, uh, but historical support as well. And uh, those two things kind of separate what we're doing in this book than other books that have recently been published on dispensationalism. Oh, that's that's helpful. And I think uh, clarifying for what people can expect from the book. Now, this book has been in process for quite a while, right? How long has it taken in working through this? When when was the idea conceived, I guess? And, you know, it's just published today. Yeah, it's it's taken too long. There's the, there's the short answer. <laughs> yeah, but this is where it's good to have co-editors, general editors, you know, because uh, even before we started this this conversation, Peter, we were, we were talking about you know it, it's it, it's it's providential the book got released when it did, you know, in the in the current today or in this current season, because of other books that have been released as well that are kind of arguing the opposite, if you will. We can talk about that later. Um, but it's it 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 has taken longer than. I had originally anticipated, I'm sure James did too, but see, I'm more the guy that just runs out the gate, you know, maybe way too fast in the sprint mode. And James is always the, you know, hey, this is a marathon, you know, so let's make sure that we're accurate on all these things before we jump to uh, getting it done too quickly. So it was nice to be able to to have some refinement of my own uh, sort of uh, impatience on some of these things. But um, either way, there was no way to, um, it was inevitable, the book, a book at this size, what we're doing um, would take a while. Not that it's so huge, it's about 400 pages, but there's multiple authors, right? There's there's a dozen different scholars on this thing. And a lot of things have happened in the last five years. Uh, let's talk about the big one, right? We went through a global pandemic. And now that we're we're much, thankfully, we're on the, the backside of that thing and looking back and getting back to normal. Um, during that, I mean, libraries shut down, Right. Uh, we couldn't collaborate on, a, on an everyday basis like we we normally would with our authors, with each other, with getting resources from libraries. Um, so that put a big halt to things. 
and uh, there were some other some other reasons as well. Um, you know, it's always kind of like when you're an editor, you sort of have to wrestle, you know, sort of, you know, wrestling or bringing the cats, you know, if you will, bring everybody together on a project. And it, and it's, it, it comes sometimes it can be a little difficult of um, everybody's schedule is different. These are all, you know, um, active scholars and professors with their own schedule. So trying to get everybody on uh, to hit their due dates and and all that stuff, you have to be very lenient on these things. Um, but, um, you know, at the end of the day, I just thank God for when it did come out, which is, as you mentioned today, because it had to come out earlier, it would have been sort of its own blast, if you will. Right now, it's coming out in the midst of a context, um, which is, I think, very important when there are other important works, even helpful works that are pushing back on maybe what we're saying, or I should say what we're we're pushing back on what they're saying, um, not on purpose. It just so happens to be we're, we're studying this this movement from different angles. So, yeah, it has taken altogether about five years, very long time. But um, we think the finished product is has certainly been worth the wait. Yeah, no, that's that's super helpful. I think just like how you described, there is a there is a very important context and conversation happening right now with regard to the historical validity of a lot of these ideas. So I think it's a it's a great time to to just be around reading these books. So I think that that's great. Now, you mentioned. You know, uh, <clears throat> Could I oh, just jump ahead, in and yeah. mention one thing concerning historicity? I mean, you know, it, historicity neither validates or invalidates, you know, but but the point is, as we've said, um, there's a lot of there's a lot of false ideas and misinformation that's usually promulgated about about the historicity of dispensational thought. And so it's just important um, that ideas be measured on their own merit, uh, you know, whether wh whatever that is. And and not be simply discredited out of hand by, um, you know, a, a sort of uh, a, a fallacious argument of recency or something like that. Um, you know, so that that is is essential. I think that's one of the reasons why with this we, um, you know, we're able to get non-dispensationalists on board with working on this project, uh, giving endorsements of the book, because, you know, it's not... Um, you know, while Corey can describe himself as a rabid dispensationalist, it's it's not a, a, a an apologetic for dispensationalism um, in in the sense of it's not advocating that this is the best system of theology. It's simply advocating and, and it is an apologetic to say um, there is something that's been neglected in this discussion. And that is that the ideas that are uh, essential to dispensational thought have been in the church for as long as the church has been around. Hmm. That's really good clarification because I do think that, that there are different reasons and methods for why you would employ different structures and couldn't agree with you more. I think when we evaluate a theological system, we do so through scripture, but there is an importance in evaluating and giving counter arguments to some of the things that are uh, launched against a system like, you know, the historical dubious nature and whatnot. So I think that's really helpful. And I appreciate you mentioning too, that even the ability to get people who are of different mindsets on other issues to work on this project. And so that kind of brings up the question of just the, con the contributors who've worked in this volume. So do you guys want to talk a little bit about that? I mean, how, how were the various contributors chosen for their chapters and how did that process kind of uh, work itself out? 
Yeah, that was that was part of the, I guess, going back to a previous question about this taking so long, there was a lot of thought and time put into sort of hand selecting and inviting certain scholars to write in this book. So what this book does is, you know, there's a there's an intro chapter, there's a concluding chapter. So the intro chapter, you know, obviously introduces the entire book. What what's our purpose? What's our goal? Who's our audience? Um, uh, you know, again, to what James just said, we need to constantly. Uh, 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 I feel like we should constantly bring uh, make this a point that this is not uh, a defense of dispensationalism as a system. It's merely showing the historical pedigree of these ideas that would later be considered dispensational. Uh, and then the final chapter, you know, sums all that up and gives a trajectory of where dispensational thought might be going in the future. But the the middle part of the book, the DNA of the book, if you will, are chapters that are divided up into historical eras. And so to your question, who did we select for this? We wanted well-credentialed historians and theologians. So oftentimes a book like this, dispensationalism is just considered in its theological aspect, not as historical aspect. Uh, we wanted those who were experts who had written in these eras, published in these certain eras, um, who are familiar with certain eras in church history that can um, interact with the primary evidence within that period and see, you know, are there any dispensational ideas or ideas that we would today call, you know, consider dispensational. Um, and so, yeah, we went around, we wanted scholars who were active in their, their fields, uh, whether they were teaching on these matters, professors, um, we have historians, several historians, um, and that's what their, their expertise is in, um, in specific eras. So for example, uh, we have Paul Hartog from Faith Bible College and Seminary, um, who was a very well-respected and known historian in the patristic period, and and he was tasked with, uh, you know, writing a chapter on ideas that are proto-dispensational, germinal dispensational, if you will, ideas that would later be considered within dispensationalism within that uh, that pivotal year of what we call the Church Fathers, the patristic era. Uh, the first few centuries after the New Testament was written. Uh, Jeremiah Muti then picks up afterwards, who's a church history professor here at Southern California Seminary. Um, he is well-known and written in uh, second century thought as well as Nicene era. And sure enough, he was tasked to write on dispensational ideas or thought, as we like to say, within the Nicene period. And the list, go, it just goes on and on. So then we move into the medieval period or, or late antiquity and medieval period uh, up through the Reformation period, a pre-Darby period, uh, which Mark Snowberger from Detroit Seminary writes on. Um, our Reformation period was, uh, by the way, to go back a little bit, written by Ron Bagalke, who has written and published works, um, not just in uh, Forge from Reformation, where he talks about premillennialism within the Reformation period, but also has written books published on uh, dispensational um, ideas and critiquing other forms of dispensationalism. Uh, we move all the way into we. This is one of the first books that, uh, in fact, it is the first book that we have. Um, uh, not just dispensationalists writing these chapters. So again, it's not an argument for the system because some of our authors would not consider themselves dispensationalists at all. For example, we have a historian writing on John Nelson Darby, who is not a dispensationalist, Max Wermchuk, yet he's a very well-known biographer of John Nelson Darby. And so that's where his, his, his expertise is in. Um, but we have a very eclectic group. We wanted firsthand representation to represent these are these eras, meaning that they're it's, it's one of their primary expertise. 
They're comfortable interacting with primary evidence with that, within that era. And when we get into American dispensationalism, they represent that particular form or field. Uh, so your one of your colleagues, Larry Pettigrew, he has done a, a very pivotal chapter of what do we do with taking dispensational ideas from Europe and crossing the Atlantic into America. Pettigrew is very well known in, in published on these matters of the Bible conference movement and showing how these ideas from Darby got changed, but they did start coming over through the uh, the different prophecy conferences and the American Bible conference movement. Um, and then we, within American dispensationalism, we have we wanted experts that were primary voices within that era for itself. So as I mentioned earlier, this is the first book where we have such an eclectic group. But one of the reasons is we have what's called uh, grace theology or mid-acts dispensationalism, um, sometimes pejoratively referred to as hyper-dispensationalism. Well, we have a firsthand representation of that. Um, Dr. Uh, Philip Long at a great Christian, Grace Christian University. Um, again, not arguing for the value or truth of these traditions or these forms of dispensationalism, but just showing the historical pedigree of it. Um, so these movements in America within dispensational thought definitely splintered off. And you have traditional dispensationalism, mid-axe dispensationalism. On the traditional side, we had Tommy Ice who wrote on what we call the golden years of dispensationalism, those years of the, the 19th century and into the 20th century. So starting with Chafer and uh, Walvert and Ryrie and Pentecost, these guys, and DTS, which was a huge uh, scholarly uh, bastion for dispensational thought that is Dallas Theological Seminary at the time. Well, Tommy Ice was a graduate and was a, a part of this movement while he was there. So he can speak into a firsthand perspective, uh, a perspective of that. And then our final chapters on where we're at today. Well, not just where we're at, but one of the most popular forms and the academic forms is progressive dispensationalism. And Daryl Bach is who wrote that chapter for us because he was a principal shaper, one of the pioneers of that particular tradition within dispensationalism uh, from 1986 on. So Daryl Bach is a, is a very well-known voice within progressive dispensationalism. So he wrote the chapter on that. Um, I skipped over some some names just to be able to get through this answer shorter uh, than it's already taken longer than I expected to. <laughs> um, but our this took time of between James and myself thinking of who is respected and credentialed and published or teaching actively in these particular eras of history and can speak into what might have been the dispensational ideas or ideas within those errors that we would consider dispensational. And I do want to say this, we didn't tell anybody that, Hey, we were saying, be honest with the evidence. You know, we're not trying to say, Hey, don't cram in something that's dispensational sounding or interpret it that way. If it's clearly not considered, if it wouldn't be considered that by anybody else. Um, so these are, there really are acting um, and researching with integrity and on and just being honest with the evidence that they have in their era and uh, and writing a chapter on it. And so our job as ed editors at that point was to make sure they all flow, uh, to make sure that one chapter flows to another, because each author, by the way, didn't see each other's chapters beforehand, which is probably a good thing because they maybe some of them might not have wanted to been on the same book with somebody else because they, they oftentimes do disagree in other areas. Um, but the, the collaboration of this was just beautiful because you see the, the end product, the book, it flows well, at least we think it does while showing some discontinuity, some diversity, but there are clear patterns of belief from the first century, all the way to the 21st century, uh, showing the, the historical, uh, uh, pedigree and legacy and heritage of these ideas that we hold to within dispensationalism. 
Mm. Now, we talked about Darby a little bit already, and he's obviously a key central player in this discussion. And so obviously the question that a lot of people would be wondering is, what do we mean when we're talking about dispensationalism that precedes Darby? That's a good question. And you know, that it's a, it's, it's important to clarify. That's a bit of an anachronistic sort of use of the term. Um, we are uh, looking at what we define as dispensational today and then reading that back into um, earlier centuries. But, you know, we do the same with amillennialism when we say, uh, the Catholic Church was amillennial for, you know, throughout uh, throughout the history um, of the church. We we that's not a term that that I think was even used until around the 18th century, or, you know, so it's 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 that same kind of thing. Um, we're talking about the ideas that are central to dispensationalism, and so we prefer to use the term when we're looking at it historically. We're tracing dispensational thought because it is. Um, in many cases, it is, of course, even the use of the word um, dispensation is one which comes straight out of the New Testament. That's that's my, my uh, first chapter in the book that as we go through the, 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 the centuries, the first century is Jesus's and the apostles' use of the New Testament word, the Greek word used that appears throughout the New Testament, oikonomia, which is dispensation. And it is the very word that, um, that every dispensationalist has has used and appealed to. So it's not like, you know, many people will say, um, refer to theological ideas and say, you know, the Trinity is doesn't appear anywhere in the in the in the Bible, but it's a theological term to describe um, a biblical truth. Well, in this case, dispensation appears throughout the New Testament. Uh, it, it appears not only in the New Testament, but uh, in the Septuagint, I mean, it's 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 a common idea to the Old Testament as well. In fact, so this is not that kind of a theological term. This is a biblical term which has been um, perceived in Scripture and which uh, theologians throughout the centuries have have looked at, have taken note of, have appealed to, and 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 have um, and have applied even theologically. Uh, meaning beyond simply the, the the historical and grammatical context of the term, you know, a steward or a stewardship, uh, but uh, a theological stewardship, which is in fact the way it's used frequently in the New Testament. You know, outside of the Gospels, Paul uses it, Peter uses it to refer to Christians as stewards, and Paul uniquely uses it of himself as a steward of the dispensation of the grace of God given to him for the Gentiles. So this is the very way in which the dispensationalist employs the term. So it's it's not a, a, a newly conceived idea. It is not an extrapolation or something. Now, when you start talking about charts that that go through um, successive, you know, history and in, in seven dispensations, sure, this theological construct is very much a a um a a, a well-tuned um uh, refined uh, development of the centuries however it, it's certainly not essential and in fact uh, almost uh, you know for the last i'd say um 100 years every dispensationalist that that i've heard of has appealed to the idea that seven dispensations or the way you order them is is absolutely not essential to the system of dispensationalism 
So um, if we if we recognize that and put all that aside and say, so what is essential? Well, these are the things that that the church has recognized. Um, you know, one of them being the fact that there is a future dispensation. A future dispensation becomes a a hallmark. So, and again, this is this is one of the reasons why some who have still divided history in in a variety of ways. Isaac Watts comes to mind as one who was. Um, uh, not premillennial in his eschatology, but still divided the, the the successive ages, looking backwards at at biblical history, dividing it up into successive dispensations, and of course using that term and understanding really would have divided it the same way as Schofield, minus the seventh dispensation, and um, you know I there's there's discussion to say well then is that really a dispensationalist to, to what extent is he a dispensationalist if he doesn't perceive the church as distinct from the coming kingdom the millennial kingdom um but but again you know these are these are important discussions to have um isaac watts lived 100 years before darby so you know that right there would be a a, a relevant discussion to have but many other of of watts contemporaries who did the very same thing as as he did um, also had the seventh dispensation, uh, the, the future expectation of the millennial kingdom. So, you know, these are the things which go all the way back to the early church. Uh, uh, the, the, the earliest centuries of the church were 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 not only pre-millennial, you know, they were referred to, again, that's sort of anachronistic. They referred to the term as Kiliasts. They were Kiliasts. They believed in the thousand years, which is the same word we use for millennium, so it's it's uh, you know the same idea, and and um, and then of course some would say yeah, but they were historic premill, they weren't dispensational premill. Well, you know that that distinction is really in reference to the rapture of the church, um, you know the seventieth week of Daniel, the Israel's judgment in the seven years. That really becomes that you know we're we're kind of at that point dickering over seven years. Which are very significant theologically, but um, but but even even all of that aside, in fact, there were many in the early church, even in the writings that we have, the apostolic fathers, that reflect the expectation of the rapture of the church, that the church would be taken to meet the Lord in the air before God's judgment upon the earth with Israel with the Gentiles and the establishment of his millennial kingdom. That is dispensational premillennialism, and it, it has been around for a long time. It has not been a majority voice, absolutely, you know, but um, but it has been present no less, and it has endured the centuries. So that's really what we're talking about when we say um, dispensationalism preceding Darby, not so much the system, the charts, these kinds of things, and we may even get around to talking about the extent to which Darby you know, influenced that or did not influence that, um, because there's there's a lot of discussion to be had around that idea. But the way we know dispensationalism today um, is really just a, a, a maturation. It is a development of the very core ideas that have been present in the church since the first century. That, that's super helpful. Actually, since you mentioned Darby, that I, I'm sure everybody's thinking this this question in their mind. Does that mean, and I appreciate the the clarification of the difference between dispensationalism being used anachronistically versus dispensational thought. I think that's helpful. But then some people are going to ask, well, is Darby even significant then? Because 
you know, everyone says he's the founder of dispensationalism. Is that an accurate assessment then? I mean, it seems like he, his significance is really downplayed if, if this is true. Right. Yeah, it's, it is true. Um, in one regard, Darby is, you know, it's, it's actually the epitaph on his tombstone says, well-known and unknown. And it is so true because he is one of those names that, 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 you know, many, I mean, I, I get it. He's not a household name, but, but for theologians and those who are, who are concerned with the ideas, which have been very relevant over the last, you know, two centuries of, of dispensationalism, futurism, Zionism, um, you know, the, the kind of ideas that have, have really played a major role, particularly in North America. Um, and uh, Darby has been a, a common name attached to these, and rightly so. Uh, is he irrelevant? Absolutely not. It doesn't, it, while it um, puts Darby in perspective as to what preceded him, there's a good reason why many people cite Darby as as the founder of dispensationalism, although I think it's very inaccurate to say that. Um, but what he really did is he systematized these many ideas, which all of which preceded him. He, um, uh, you know, through a, a diligent life, I mean, it's, it's just remarkable what he was able to accomplish in his over 80 years of diligent ministry exegetical um, uh, uh, translation of the Greek and Hebrew scriptures into multiple languages throughout his lifetime. It's just remarkable. His life um, dedicated to the study of scripture produced a wealth of, of um, you know, literary information that many have drawn from and that has absolutely influenced, you know, not only ecclesiological movements, uh, the Plymouth Brethren, um, but has influenced, uh, you know, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, Baptists, uh, non-denominationalists, uh, you know, Keswick, uh, so many different movements, even Charismatics, have all been, in one way or another, Pentecostals, surely all, all have been influenced by his writings. They are significant because he has put more thought into this issue He has uh, you know, than, than, than most. He has dedicated his life to... Um, you know, not 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 strictly this, but certainly uh, the eschatology, the ecclesiology, the pneumatology. Um, these were major themes for Darby. I mean, as was you know soteriology and 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 everything else. I mean, he was he was very much um, given to um, to 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 the scriptures and 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 the fact that there's you know. The, the collected writings alone. He's he has over thirty seven volumes. There's notes. There's jottings. There's um, there's a, a, about fifty plus volumes of, and that's just what's been published. That's not the unpublished material that he's that he's written. That's that's you know handwritten. Um, some of which we still have today. So, you know, the fact is, it's just a a treasure trove of of um, information. But it is not easy to extract. Um, he wasn't a he wasn't a, a good writer. He wasn't really even writing so much to be read. Um, he was more just, you know, 
uh, almost almost like journaling, not in a personal sense, but his thoughts of scripture would just always go to paper. And of course, it's collected from letters and and personal correspondence and and and, and short tracked publications that is usually the extent to which he would publish. There are you know synopsis and a few other volumes that that were intended for publication. But all of this to say, um, it it's it's really a, a veritable goldmine. Um, for those who are interested in this, the problem is, um, you know, there's just a small handful that are interested. And of those who are, um, it, it's 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 laborious work to go through Darby's writing. So he's ended up being more of a, a figurehead, one that is associated with dispensationalism, because we know that he wrote on it extensively. But really, I think very few are very familiar I think few are familiar with Darby's writings, Darby's thought. And so, in fact, um, I think he's he's more relevant than many would give him credit. Hmm. Yeah, uh, Peter, if I, if I can helpful. jump in really quick. Yeah. I, I have uh, such sympathy for James because his PhD in history is on John Nelson Darby. I was going to say, his, yeah. Yeah, his views on the church and, and other matters. So that requires him to read all of Darby. And I've tried doing this, and I didn't get past maybe maybe three works of Darby's. Uh, uh, several years ago, I wrote a chapter. I presented at a conference, wrote a chapter in in, a, in one of our books on on John Nelson Darby, comparing him to Martin Luther. And I only had to deal with three of his works, I think, maybe three or four. Um, and I never wanted to read Darby again. I mean, it's just it's like slugging through mud. I mean, this guy's writing. It's 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 easier to to learn a foreign language and read works than that. And having to read through Darby because as James said he just kind of vomited his thoughts on paper and other people would collect his writings and and kind of smooth them out or interpret or whatever and he developed so much in his own his own thought process so which part of Darby are reading you know his earlier works or his later works uh, but it is laborious as he said and so um you know having I mean that's it's one of the cool things about having uh James on this on this project is that he is an expert in Darby and interacts with that literature and that literature itself is its own world uh, I'm reminded of a, a funny statement that Charles Spurgeon who was a peer of Darby Darby was a little bit older um but even Spurgeon said you know if if Darby was clear in his own mind then he'd be clear to us you know type of thing because his writing is just these long concatenated sentences parentheses within parentheses within parentheses and it's just it's just it's 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 a nightmare having to read through his stuff and so i go up in james's office and he's got all 37 volumes i think it's 37 right of of, of the collective writings and his synopsis and other things all over the place and it's like man that when you're in, when you're studying john Nelson darby at the level that that he has and that others have even for our book it's like you're that's your world and you got to try to deal with this guy who's so well-known and unknown. So those who promulgate these ideas, starting with Darby, nine times out of 10, they have not read him. They can't, you know, or you read maybe a work or two um, in his younger years, but not his later years. I mean, it's just, it's such hard reading uh, to be able to get through Darby. So, No, that's, that's uh, helpful to know. And, and I think something you said, James, too, that that's helpful. You know, I, I hear similar lines of reasoning with regard to how Darby influences dispensationalism with some systematization, which, I mean, covenant theologians often argue that way with regard to covenant theology, too. They say, well, well, of course, there's systematization going on in the Reformation era, but all these themes were present earlier as well. And so it just brings us full circle to what you mentioned earlier, is that, you know, there may be some key players like Calvin or Darby but at the same time, the the place where these conversations are best had 
would be comparing systems to scripture and interpretation uh, with regard to hermeneutics and theology. So I appreciate you uh, pointing out the contribution of Darby and applaud you for your work on Darby. Uh, that's, that's helpful to the church, especially since, as Corey said, it's not easy reading. So I want to pivot just a little bit and talk about some of the recent publications that, Corey, you had mentioned uh, have been coming out uh, that have been giving kind of an alternative viewpoint of dispensational thought uh, and just the, the recency of dispensationalism. And, you know, one of the, one of the works uh, was even called The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism. There, there have been a lot of uh, interesting publications and conversations happening recently. So do you want to kind of talk a little bit about that uh, with contrast to this book? Sure. Yeah. There's, um, as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's taken a while for our book to come out, but it's providential in the time that it has. So it's given sort of a counterbalance to some other popular works Some works that have just been published that are very good, uh, for up to a point, uh, I, I would have some caveats, um, that are gaining a lot of steam. Um, and so our work is, is offering a little pushback, a little counter to it. Uh, one of the, one of the, you know, it's, it's just it's it's inevitable when you publish and you write is that you can't read everything that you need to that might inform that particular writing. Right. Uh, so in our book, the very first chapter I had written that. And at the time, there were two books that were just coming out or about to be released and they hadn't yet. So I wasn't able to read all but all of these two works I'm about to mention. When I wrote that chapter, I was only able to mention them in a footnote, a couple footnotes. Um, since then, I have read these books. So, yeah, so you mentioned one of them. Um, Daniel Hamel's uh, Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism was just published by Erdman's. And the subtitle of that is How the Evangelical Battle Over the End Times Shaped a Nation. It's a very sensational title. You hear the rise and fall of dispensationalism. And then the subtitle goes into one particular area of doctrine. That's end times, eschatology of dispensationalism. And that's not the only work that that doesn't like this. Another work that I had had read and and was able to review for an upcoming journal was called is called After Dispensationalism, published by Lexham Press. And the subtitle for that one, if I remember correctly, is um, how how the um, reading the Bible for end times, something like that. I know the end times is in. I think that's it. Reading the Bible for end times. Again, this idea that dispensationalism doctrinally or theologically gets reduced to one area of subdoctrine, and that be end times thinking. And to the non-dispensationalist, that's generally how dispensationalism gets characterized theologically. It's only about end times, right? Both of these two works are different, by the way. Um, after dispensationalism written by um, Brian Irwin with Tim Perry, uh, they do a very good job tracing some historical origin of, um, well, not even the historical origin, but how um, Darby, the both works, by the way, start with, with originating dispensational ideas, if you will, with Darby. And this is one of, this is two, this is, this is the common error that most critical works of dispensationalism do. They just center and originate it in Darby. Um, but after dispensation was a good work because it gives some, some interesting and, and fair, uh, assessment of the different dispensational uh, dispensations as understood by Darby and different, which was different than Americans like Chafer or Ryrie or Walford. Um, but there's also some, some, I, I would say that we're just, you know, that we're, we're less 
um, desirable elements in the book. Um, this is written by two non-dispensationalists, and they try to remain ironic as they can and fair, but that that only goes so far until the sort of they start lopping the bombs, which happen at some point in the book. And so half the book on after dispensationalism is actually talking about, you know, how dispensationalists misread scripture. Uh, they want to commend dispensationalists for being zealous for Bible study and yet at the same time uh, condemn us, if you will, uh, for misreading scripture. We can't have it both ways. And so half of the book is talking what they would refer to as apocalyptic literature in the Bible, Ezekiel and Daniel and Revelation. And how their interpretation from an apocalyptic stance, a non-dispensational stance, makes better sense of that literature. Um, so, I mean, that that particular work after dispensationalism, there, there's a lot of good in it, but um, there's also, I would say, bad as well. And with Daniel Hummel's book, um, or Hummel's book, um, The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism, it's a misleading title. Just like the other book, after dispensationalism, implies we're in this world that's post-dispensational. We've left, you know, the, the mantra is always, you know, leave behind, left behind. You know, we've left behind these popular ideas or this this kind of novel little theology. Now we're now we're into a new era that's a little bit more uh, a little smarter, a little bit more intellectual, if you will. Both the titles, of both of these works, kind of imply that whether it's after dispensationalism or the rise and fall of dispensationalism, meaning we're now in an era that's past what dispensationalism was. Well, in Hummel's book, when you read it, it, it his is a uh, historical, a cultural historical critique of the movement of dispensationalism and it's good for what it is because that's its lane it is just showing the phenomenon of his the, the of how it's influenced american thought um starting with darby but then moving into america and so it has this more of an analysis of of the, the cultural phenomenon that's come out of dispensationalism and really a critique of pop dispensationalism or lay level entertaining dispensationalism um, and so when he says the rise and fall of dispensationalism, he's saying there's no more academic or what he calls scholastic dispensationalism. That was during the, the Dallas Theological Seminary days of Ryrie and, and, and Walbert and Pentecost and these guys. But since then, it's it's dead. You know, it's only the entertaining left behind franchise, you know, that's left or or, or works like um, Hal Lindsey's late great planet Earth or, or, or a thief in the night, which came out even earlier than that. It's these these popular late level ideas that have overshadowed anything academic of dispensationalism. So it's good for what it argues, but again, both books lack seriously lack engagement with modern dispensational scholarship. Uh, quite frankly, they don't even know about it that let's say a work like ours or others that are other institutions that have journals that are academic dispensational journals even exist uh, for the most part. Uh, so ours is instead of a cultural historical critique of the movement of dispensationalism, we're coming at it from the angle of historical doctrinal doctrinal development, how these ideas have always been in church history floating around by various thinkers um, and how they have developed over time into what we might call dispensationalism today. So we're not being anachronistic in any sense. We're not saying dispensationalism as a system always existed. Um, or these early thinkers call themselves dispensationalists because that wasn't even a word until the 20th century to describe our particular, or the early 20th century, to describe our particular um, tradition or patterns of belief. Uh, we're just saying these these doctrinal, these patterns of belief have always existed from the first century on. Um, and so it's more ours, is, it's different. The alternative is, it's one, it's showing a historical origin that predates Darby by centuries, by millennia, 
if you will. Um, and also it's showing the historical doctrinal development as opposed to critiquing the movement as a whole and its popular versions or its fringe versions. Now, some people are going to kill me if I don't ask some specific questions about the book itself. So I have to uh, ask some content uh, issues because people want to know, like, what kind of evidence are you guys putting out? So I, I think most people would acknowledge that premillennialism, or as James, you mentioned uh, at that point, known as Kiliasm, um, that that's, you know, most people would acknowledge the predominant view of the very early church. But is that the only evidence for what, what you're talking about with regard to dispensational thought, or are there other themes that are present in the early church as well? That's a, that's a great question. Um, and and the, uh, the, the eschatology is, was significant, obviously, uh, among the early church fathers, and, and that there was not just a futurist expectation of um, the return of Christ and the kingdom, but, you know, it was known as Kiliism because the expectation was that Christ would reign and the saints would reign with him in Jerusalem for a thousand years. And, and that, you know, that's, that is prominent. Um, and, but, but beyond merely that eschatological expectation of the thousand year millennial reign on earth from Jerusalem, um, with, you know, with feasting and with things like this, um, which, which, you know, in other words, uh, sort of a marriage supper. Um, and these are the words of Justin Martyr, Arrhenius, um, Tertullian, uh, these, you know, they, they all, they all reflect this, this expectation. But beyond this, um, when you talk about uh, the, the, the arrangement of biblical history, uh, you know, past and future, which is what dispensationalism is, because I mean, you know, to God, the 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 future is as is as certain and as as written out as the past. And so, um, you know, what he has disclosed in the Book of Revelation and the expectation of what's coming is is just as um, as as certain as you know when we look back and and that which has been written, that which has already um, uh, transpired and. The expectation that was um, again this this is not uh, we don't want to try to characterize this like um, you know all all of the the Kiliists, which was the predominant view in the early church that they all subscribed to some of these other views but a a notable view that that does pop up uh, various times we see it in Lactantius uh, around the um, third fourth century. And it's it it stems. Uh, he he references uh, six thousand years of human history preceding the seven thousand year and uh, a septarian arrangement of history according to creation week or a day age theory uh, that that has been um, that has been around in the church. I, I think the first reference that we have where we can pin down is the Epistle to Barnabas, which um, outlines a, a scheme of 7,000 years and, uh, you know, perceiving the millennium as the seventh day of rest, the Sabbath day, and uh, 6,000 years preceding it, um, which is which is remarkable it's truly remarkable when we consider that, you know, Christ's coming, uh, you know, that 
that these guys writing in the first, second, and third century would would actually have an expectation. I, I mean, it, it, which is 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 quite difficult to imagine. Two thousand more years of human history. I mean, were they counting that correctly? They were expecting Christ to return at any day, and yet to have this this idea of now they probably counted it a little differently. Maybe they weren't looking back four thousand years and anticipating a, a future two thousand more, the way it's commonly counted today. Um, you know, meaning a lot of a lot of uh, those who would who would look at the genealogies of the Bible would would reconstruct something that's much more closer to like Adam's charts and these kind of these kind of arrangements but um, so they probably did not count it quite the same way but still that that in the early centuries of the church they would expect 6,000 successive days to correspond to the six days of creation week prior to a seventh day of rest which they fully wrapped up with the idea of a millennial, reign of Christ upon the earth when the earth would be at rest. I'll just kind of brief quote here from Lactantius. He says, it is necessary that at the end of the 6,000th year, all evil be abolished from the earth and that justice reign for a thousand years and that there be tranquility and rest from the labors which the world is now enduring for so long. So, you know, I mean, it, it it shows a lot of themes. Number one, this is a present evil age. Um, you know, we are in this world enduring tribulation. In the age to come, the world will be at rest. Uh, so, um, yes, that is, again, an eschatological expectation. But that measuring out of 6,000 years of, of expectation, um, it, it, with each thousand being its own distinct uh, successive um, epoch, is uh, was you know and, and and that that is not by the way to clarify that is not what dispensationalists hold to today that is that is not um any it really in any dispensational scheme that that i've seen in the last hundred years that is not what is commonly i mean you know um clarence uh mason had some had some charts which reflected that that kind of ideology so and that was you know uh in in the last century but but that that is not typical of dispensational thought today. But um, to, in answer to your question, uh, that does seem to be a recurring theme in the early church. So, and it, and it definitely moves beyond merely the eschatological expectation. That's helpful. And I want to zero in on one thing you said as well, because I think it's really important in not just in scholarship, but to train, you know, everybody to, to think fairly. And one of the things you said was that not everybody believed the same thing. And it's so common today to just try to pigeonhole people saying everybody who held Achilleism believed, you know, also this or whatever. And we do that today too, that all dispensationalists believe the same thing. And I appreciated the fairness. And I've, I've noticed that in the book too, and reading through it, that, uh, there, there is a fairness granted that what we're not, we're not looking for, a, you know, the, we're not looking for uh, somebody who would be a progressive dispensationalist today to have every single check uh, check mark in those boxes fit onto you know the early church or anything like that. And I think that that's really helpful. How you guys have really pushed that idea that you're not look you need to fairly consider the evidence. And what we're looking for are those themes, and we're looking for 
those those ways of thinking. And so I do think that that's helpful how you how you explain that. Well, it's it's if I can jump in here for a second, uh, Peter, it's like in our subtitle, tracing the development of dispensational thought through the first to the 21st century, not tracing dispensationalism from the first to the 21st century. Right. And that's very intentional, uh, just like our previous work that we published in 2017 was called Forge from Reformation. And the subtitle is how dispensational thought advances the reformed legacy, reformed legacy. <clears throat> Because what we're doing, we are making a distinction between dispensationalism and what you just said, the themes or ideas, what we call dispensational thought, um, which might be loosely connected according from one theologian to the next, um, not as neat as a system would have it. Um, but, you know, the, the, you're seeing the that would happen in time. These things would be refined and developed over time. So our our goal with this book was it's right there and captured it's captured in the subtitle we're tracing a dispensational thought um i.e dispensational ideas or themes and even the word dispensational again to avoid any acronym we're, we're taking a term that we know now although the first chapter written by james shows the biblical roots uh, not just in the new testament but the septuagint of oikonomia this is a biblical word so the system itself as i argue in the in the final chapter is a biblical theology as opposed to rival systems like covenant theology, which is more systematic. This is biblical because it's diachronic, it's descriptive, it's it's historical. Um, you see it tracing through scripture, and even the, the, the terms we use are biblical. However, what we're saying in this book is that ideas that would later be understood at, by the system of dispensationalism, the, 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 what we're calling dispensational thought or ideas or themes, those are easily traceable through all the church history. And there's just no way after reading this book, someone can put it down and say, nope, it's dispensationalism was just, it just invented out of nowhere um, or in the mind of one evil genius. Um, these ideas have always been floating around and just would later be system would be systematized much later, but they are dispensational thought is as old as church history. That's very helpful. Thanks, Corey. Now, I mean, there's so much in this book, obviously, like you said, 400 pages and maybe just one more content question before we move on to some other things. I think maybe the the deepest void in the Christian conscience or maybe consciousness, theological understanding would be the medieval period. I mean, if anybody's going to know about it, it's usually Catholic theologians. But when you think about the medieval period, uh, I'm curious if you could help maybe the listeners understand um, what kind of supports for dispensational thought uh, are found in the medieval period? Yeah, that's certainly a sort of nebulous, long-gated period, what's often referred to as as, as the Dark Ages, right? Um, who would have thought there were dispensational ideas within that particular period of history? And sure enough, there, there were. Um, I skipped over earlier in, our, in the beginning of our conversation of different uh, scholars we had writing each chapter. One I skipped over was this big, huge chunk of medieval period that we assigned to, and he graciously accepted our invitation, uh, Dr. William Watson, who was for 25 years the professor of church history at Colorado Christian University. Um, Dr. Watson, um, he's probably best known for, James brought up the book earlier, Dispensationalism Before Darby, which was the culmination of his years of research in primary English 17th and 18th century documents, proving that Darby in the 19th century didn't invent any of these doctrines. 
Um, instead, Darby stood in the same line of centuries of British clergy before him who believed in, say, a literal future restoration of national Israel or even a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. And of course, these are, are staple dispensational beliefs now, but they've existed for quite some time. Uh, that was his other book. In this book, as far as we're aware, and this is what one of the reasons why our book is special, uh, Bill, William Watson, his chapter is his very last publication that we know of before he unexpectedly died in 2020. Um, one of the other reasons why this book has taken as long as it has to come out, one of our authors did die right after he had had submitted his first rough draft, maybe second rough draft. So we had actually left things as we're editing his chapter. He left notes and annotations to himself to check things later, perhaps, or maybe even little his own little notations. We couldn't understand what they were. There's no way to verify these things. So we left several of them stand. And in footnotes, we'll have brackets, an editor's note. Um, of what we may have thought Bill meant by this note, but we just couldn't verify it because he, 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 unfortunately, he had died before we can talk to him about it. So as far as we're aware, we're the only one that ha we have his last publication. And Bill was known for um, uh, uh, publications and research and writing within the medieval period. That was sort of his expertise. And what that chapter does, it's our chapter five, dispensational ideas or thought within the medieval period. It covers a millennia of church history. He starts in the year 430, going all the way to 1450, which then leads up to the Reformation era. And what Bill does is he divides the entire medieval era in what he calls late antiquity period, which is the 5th through 9th century, and then late medieval period, which is the 10th to 15th century. And he surveys 14 different medieval thinkers that evidence early proto-dispensational patterns of belief. It's remarkable. For example, in this chapter, you're going to see these medieval thinkers um, dividing history into successive dispensations or economies, a future and personal Antichrist to come. So that the Antichrist was not a system or an apostate religion, such as the reform. Some of the reformers would later think that's what Rome was or the Pope was or or even that the beast in, in Revelation 13 was the rise of Islam. No, there is much evidence that shows that these medieval thinkers expected a future personal antichrist, uh, which is a, a standard stable belief within dispensationalism today. Even a church rapture, what we would today call a preacher rapture, and also a mid-rapture position are within this period. A uh, future and literal tribulation period, a Jewish restoration to their own land. Uh, a premillennial return of Jesus and establishment of his kingdom in Israel is within writings of this period. And of course, these positions are all the result of a literal interpretation of scripture, uh, especially prophetic passages, which was indeed practiced among many in this typically dark period. So, I mean, when you read the chapter and you see how he's divided, it's, it's fascinating because first in his late antiquity period, which was the 5th through the 19th, 9th century, Several early medieval thinkers will evidence these proto-dispensational elements. Um, some of them include the 5th century patriarch uh, Cyril of Alexandria, or Theodoret, who was a Syrian bishop of Cyrus, also in the mid-century, and, and who was one of the greatest minds to emerge from the Antiochian literal tradition. Uh, Caesarius of Arles. Uh, was a bishop from southern France um, in the 6th century who wrote one of the first commentaries in the book of Revelation. Um, he talks about uh, a springness of Beha, 
probably butchering his name, Bill would know how to pronounce it, uh, in uh, mid-6th century. He was a southern Portugal bishop. He held a similar eschatology and also wrote a uh, commentary on Revelation. And among these thinkers and others that I didn't even mention in this early period are multiple instances of dividing history into different eras or dispensations, many of whom listed seven, which many traditional dispensationalists would today. Uh, Bill Watson, he records over two dozen citations of a future literal Antichrist and close to a dozen examples of medieval theologians who believe that the Jewish people would not only come to faith in Jesus in the future, but also that their land and borders would be restored along with a restoration of the Jewish temple. And that's not all. I mean, the, ch- the chapter shows from primary evidence of a, of a dozen med- medieval thinkers who taught a future tribulation period just prior to the return of Christ, the majority of whom have even believed it was a literal seven-year period. So when people say that the church rapture was a 19th century doctrine or that Darby invented a pre-trib rapture position, this chapter certainly proves otherwise. It evidences almost a dozen clear mentions of a rapture of the church now, this is probably distributed to what we would today call pre-trib, pre-wrath, and mid-trib, depending on how you are interpreting. But they're still there within this early period. That's just the 5th and ninth and the ninth centuries. And then the chapter goes on, if I can, here. In the late medieval period, which goes from the 10th centuries to the 15th century, and common in this darkest era of the medieval period was the idea as Bill shows in that chapter, a literal flight to safety from the wrath of a personal antichrist, what we would call today a rapture. Uh, for example, Brother Dulcino was part of a 14th century religious group influenced by St. Francis, and no doubt he had questionable beliefs. Okay, And we would certainly not endorse everything he said, but he did teach a personal antichrist and a literal rapture of the saints. And he also viewed history according to several dispensations, and he, as he understood them, Uh, If anything, showing these ideas were already floating around in church history long before the modern era. Uh, There's also a modern document that uh, Watson talks about in this chapter. Uh, It's an anonymous document in the 15th century called the Treatise of the Coming of the Antichrist. And it it teaches the expectation of a personal, literal Antichrist and a future rapture of the church. And explicit connections are made to dispensational thought or uh, connections to dispensational thought are made. Uh, by the, the this document, whoever the author was, his appeals to the same biblical text which modern dispensationalists appeal, which is you know Daniel's chapter seven to, to twelve or Second Thessalonians or the Book of Revelation. Now, this is just a sampling what I gave you right here of pro, of, of, of proto dispensational thinkers spread across the entire thousand year medieval period, and the list goes on and on in our book, and specifically in that chapter by William Watson, and you read it. And it becomes painfully obvious that ideas that are considered dispensational today were clearly present a thousand years before the Protestant Reformation and 1300 years before the birth of John Nelson Darby. So, so I've, I've actually got a quote here from, uh, um, from Brother Dulcino, who who was, uh, it said that the, the group that started came up in the, in the 14th century, but he lived in the 13th century. Um, died right just at the very beginning of the first few years of the 14th century. 1307, and, right? Yeah, right. So mm-hmm. it was um, it was reported from from one of those within that group that quote the Antichrist was coming into this world within the bounds of the said three and a half years, and after he had come, 
that Dulcino and his followers would be transferred into paradise in which are Enoch and Elijah. And in this way, they will be preserved unharmed from the persecution of Antichrist. So that certainly sounds like a pre-tribulational rapture. And that's the 13th century. Um, and, and, you know, one name that didn't come up, uh, perhaps the most famous name from, uh, again, these and these are Catholic theologians, Joachim of Fior, who um, was well known for his apocalyptic um, expectations, his, his pre-millennial anticipation of the kingdom of God, and he divided history, biblical history, into successive ages, uh, seeing some correspondence between the members of the Trinity, uh, God the Father being sort of the age of Israel, God the Son being the age of the church, Christ, and a future age of the Holy Spirit in the millennium. And so he had these successive ages as as well in, in his apocalyptic expectation of of um, uh, the, the return of Christ and the establishment of the millennial kingdom. So, I mean, these, the, it, and these are Catholic thinkers. So uh, the, the fact is just because it was Catholic history doesn't mean that you didn't have dispensational thought um, sprinkled throughout. Hmm. That's, that's super helpful. Sounds like that chapter alone is worth uh, buying the book. Honestly, that's, uh, that's it's funny. exciting. Yeah, Peter, I've actually through on Twitter and different social media platforms, um, which is both a, a joy and a curse to be a part of, <laughs> right? Uh, that particular era, I get I get pushed back all the time. Nobody believes in say a pre-tribulational rapture in the medieval period or in the dark ages. What do you do with there was it was all allegorical readings. That's why the reformers, it's almost like Christianity didn't start until Martin Luther had his tower experience or something, right? And everything else is just these allegorized mystical messes. There was always a remnant, a pocket of thinkers who understood the Bible literally, at least as best as they could, understood it consistently in that sense. And because of that, had these ideas that floated around that would later be systematized under dispensationalism. And we wouldn't endorse everything that they thought, like James just brought up. And we just mentioned one, Brother Dulcino, who was actually burned as a heretic, but a heretic according to Roman Catholicism. Um, he had some questionable ideas, no doubt. And many of these thinkers did. But the staple ideas that that they did have a common pattern that stayed, they didn't, they were there for a reason. And that has to be explained. And so a chapter like Bill's, which covers over a thousand years, or even the rest of our chapters, to show how these these beliefs just developed and refined over time, but they were always there because it came from a literal reading of scripture. Yeah, that's helpful. Now, what having worked, you know, uh blood, sweat, and tears over this book, uh hopefully uh not as much blood or tears, hopefully mainly sweat. Um, what do you what do you gentlemen uh foresee with regard to the reception of this book what's you, what's what's your hope uh in how this book will be received uh, well you know it certainly will will have pushback because um it presents some uh unconventional and inconvenient truths that people would just rather not uh, come to grips with um and i don't anticipate that because we're bringing those to the fore that um, you know, it will silence the, the the critics' mouths from continuing to repeat, um, you know, the same the same naive claims over and over again. But what I am hoping to be very realistic and to be very modest with my expectation, I'm hoping that we have provided enough support that 
when those irresponsible claims continue to be made by, you know, church history professors or, um, you know, and usually it's not church history professors. It's usually people who are more, you know, maybe maybe pastors or people who are, um, you know, have a more of a cursory level understanding of dispensational history. Um, when when those kinds of claims are made, we will at, at least armed the more discerning reader or student of history to be able to raise their hand and say, excuse me, but I believe that that's not correct. And hopefully we've sort of armed people with enough information for those that that, that care um, to, to actually get to the bottom of this rather than simply perpetuate uh, the, the myth of the 19th century um, creation of dispensationalism. And if that book, uh, if the book Discovering Dispensationalism accomplishes that, uh, I will be very happy because, yeah, we've all seen it where most of the, you know, anytime somebody introduces dispensational or t- dispensationalism or talks about it, almost without fail, the leading statement is, well, this is a very novel doctrine, but we should talk about it a little more anyway because it's popular, but just reject it out of fact because it's just recent anyway. So. Yeah, I, I, I hope this does keep the conversation going in positive directions. On that note, uh, just, I guess, some general questions for, for how you have observed things shifting in the world of academia, maybe even in the, in the church itself. But uh, how, how is, in your perception, how is dispensationalism uh, being received holistically? Has there been any major shifts recently over the last few years? Um, how's it faring in, in the church and academia? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I would say, so as an academic myself, who's grounded in the local church, I try to keep a perspective on, on both sides of the spectrum here. Um, there is no doubt that in academia, dispensationalism is marginalized. Um, it has been for quite some time, uh, at least traditional dispensationalism. In fact, our first chapter starts off that way with some pretty scanting quotes, uh, quotes and 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 derisive terms that are thrown at dispensationalists by fellow academics. We are called everything under the sun: heretics, handmaidens to the prosperity gospel, even racists. It's pretty remarkable. We're scandalous, anti-intellectual. We're cultural, you know, we're cultural, uh, fundam- anti-intellectual fundamentalist type of ideas. Uh, these are these are that's big business within Christian publishing today um, for for a dispensational scholar to get a book published by a mainline publisher uh, defending dispensationalism or at least being sympathetic with it is almost impossible. What gets published are those written by non dispensationalists writing about dispensationalism, critiquing it even as fairly as they possibly can. But those are accepted. Um, I can tell you even when, whether I'm, I'm a member actively with ETS and SBL and IBR, um, it almost becomes like you have to shun your dispense. You can't use the word and you got to shun the, the ideas of it. And then, of course, people, you know, come up to you secretly, by the way, I, I'm a dispensationalist too. I believe in that also, but nobody can actually say it in academia because it's not respected. You know, when it comes to academic publishers, at least on the evangelical side, the conservative, or let's even call it confessional evangelical side. Uh, reformed and covenantal uh, thinkers, they've had the, the market in academic publishing for quite some time. Dispensationalism traditionally 
going back to its roots. And this is one of the, the strengths of Pettigrew's chapter showing the Bible conference movement. It became an idea of we can understand scripture and these ideas regardless of where you are intellectually, because God revealed his word and he wants it to be understood whether you're five or 105. So dispensationalism really took root as a grassroots movement in the local church. Um, and so it's when you ask people, what's what's the most popular system of theology? Oftentimes, academics will say it's dispensationalism and we need to get rid of that old, outdated thing. Well, they're considering popular level entertainment value, uh, dispensational, you know, I, uh, a, a version of dispensationalism that the academic or the scholastic hardly holds to. You know, so they're looking at as the popular influence of it and thinking that's the most pop, you know, the most well-known or most adhered to system of theology in America, say, uh, so to speak, or, or for example. Uh, but then you go to the academic side, and when you're in academics, it's not. It is it is everything but dispensationalism, right? So it's uh, to, to, just to, to further what James said. I, I hope this book re is received. You know, the the haters are still going to hate. They're still going to promulgate false ideas of what we believe. Um, there's been some very respected theologians who have flat out been absolutely wrong in what we teach and have been corrected publicly, and they continue to publish books. Uh, uh, promulgating the error, total straw man error uh, argument of something we believe. Um, so, you know, in, in academia, unfortunately, it is sort of an uphill battle if you're a dispensational scholar trying to make a case for a literal interpretation of scripture. It's not it's not very popular on uh, on the, the, the PhD level if you need to pump out a dissertation um, on something that's just based on a literal reading of scripture. You know, there's a there's always a pressure for the academic to come up with something that is making a contribution, um, you know, something that no one's else said, or perhaps coming at a different angle. And dispensationalism is is very traditional. It's looking again. It's 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 bringing everything back to the Bible and exegetical and it's inductive. And when you do that, there's really not that much room to maneuver. There is some maneuverability and there's some flexibility and mystery in the Bible, but the core system and framework of what we see of God doing from, from Genesis to revelation is pretty well known and established and, and how he ruled, he governed the world through his divine economies through, throughout the, the centuries. This is an idea that church hist, uh, theologians within church history have, have, have seen since the beginning, uh, since the end of the new Testament, you know, from the patristics on. So it, anyways, it's a, it's an interesting question because it, it how is dispensationalism faring in academia? You're going to get a different question, a different answer there than how it is at the local church level. And we understand when we understand that dispensationalism at its root level as a system is was is is almost tailor made, if you will, for the for the church, because it doesn't require all these letters after your name to understand the plain meaning of scripture. You're going to have more local church that are holding to you know, traditional dispensational ideas, even if they're not even using the word dispensationalism. Um, for example, a premillennial return of Christ or a pre-trib rapture, uh, or there seems to be a distinction between God's people Israel and the church, which is made up of both Jewish believers and Yeshua, as well as Gentiles. That's another mischaracterization that gets that gets thrown out a lot of times that we believe that uh, Israel is Israel and the church is Gentile and, and God has a plan for the Gentiles only right now in the church. Well, the church is made up of both Jew, believing Jewish people and Gentiles. It's a different economy within this grace economy we're in right now. Uh, so when at the end of the chapter of our book, um, we sum up everything. And that if there was uh, an apologetic for the system of dispensationalism, which it's not, but it, it comes close to it would be that final chapter. 
uh, where we try to dispel two myths about dispensationalism that are always, that are just constantly promulgated, that being that dispensationalism is itself a hermeneutic, and the second being that dispensationalism teaches multiple ways of salvation. Both of those are, have been corrected ad nauseum, I say in that chapter, by different dispensational thinkers, and yet these are false ideas that continue to be promulgated, as well as dispensationalism was invented or originated with John Nelson Darby. Those are three things that are you know, constantly... Uh, spoken about and mischaracterized about us, about dispensationalism, regardless of how many works come out saying the opposite, which unfortunately aren't too many because we can't get our works published in mainline evangelical publishers for the reasons I just you know gave earlier. Um, so I, I think it, it takes a quite a lot of hubris to say our book is going to change the world and everybody's going to understand that our system is is at least historical, if not biblical as well. We're going to say it's both. May, maybe you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have a tiny little pinprick, uh, you know, in in the the general idea that dispensationalism is novel and that it's, you know, cultic or something like that, and that it's heretical. All these things that are wrong, mischaracterizations, maybe uh, our book will help uh, dispel some of those myths with some of these academics. So we hope that it gets read by the it's, it's, it's more made for the academic community. Uh, it doesn't give a value judgment on the system. It's just showing the historical pedigree. And when that's actually read and considered and seen, hopefully some of these scholars who mis have misunderstood, misunderstood dispensationalism um, will have a new found sympathy or respect for it and consider, you know, changing their own beliefs about what dispensationalism teaches and and get on board, at least agree or, or uh, you know, acknowledge what we actually what the system actually does teach. That's helpful. Well, we've uh, kept you longer than anticipated, but I'm sure everyone's going to appreciate that. But before we go, uh, what's what's next uh, on your agenda? I mean, today, uh, this week marks the launch of the book. So obviously celebrating that, pushing that. Uh, so that's that's great. But you guys already have a next project that you're working on? James, well, we both, yeah, yeah, we both got different, different things going on. So, um, yeah, I, I had mentioned, you know, one of the things that, that delayed this project is the fact that both Corey and myself were, were working on uh, PhD, um, research throughout, throughout the, you know, the, the, the several years, I'm still wrapping that up. He finished it, uh, several years back now. So, um, you know, I, I, my research on Darby is is something that I've I've really been working on and expect uh, to publish in the next. Um, uh, I'll be looking for a publisher next year, so that's uh, that's on the horizon for me. And of course, we're always presenting at different um, uh, you know on different topics as well. So I've also got something in the works on um, uh, uh, New Testament uh, uh, use of glossolalia tongues in 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 the early church. Um, so yeah, we've got, we've got a couple different projects and another, another project that we have, um, we, we maybe just leave it at that, but I know that we've, he and I, you know, we work together. So we, we certainly have a lot of discussions and, and, um, um, look for opportunities, look for, for voids in the, in, in research and wanting to make sure that there's something that, um, um, that, that, that represents, um, what, what we teach here at the school, uh, looking for publishers that, that will put that out sometimes can be a challenge because there is definitely a, a bias against, um, you know, a, a more conservative voice in scholarship. And we've experienced that. 
yeah for as for me i'm I'm always thinking of, I always have some project going and it's, it's, it gets a little overwhelming at times to try to button these things up. Um, but, you know, I like to try to stay productive, um, just, you know, cultivating the life of the mind. So although I, I, I jokingly said earlier, I'm a rabid dispensationalist. I meant that really as some would consider me that just because I'm the only dispensationalist they know, <laughs> you know, um, but it's not the only topic I research and write. My research interests have traditionally been in the Johannine literature. So a lot of John writings. Um, so I have some articles that are coming out. One just got released by uh, BBR on a, a subset of trauma studies in John and uh, I have a, a chapter coming out, very thankful for it, that got picked up uh, by a book that's going to be published by Cascade, which is an imprint of Wittenstock, um, coming out on pseudepigraphy in the New Testament. Uh, it's multi-authored work. Mine was uh, dealing with the Gospel of John and his letters and pushing back against recent scholarship that are saying those are pseudonymous. Um, um, you know, those are written by, by people pretending to be an eyewitness or pretending to be John. They weren't really written by John and I argue the opposite. So I have that coming out and I'm, I'm working on a book right now. Um, also that's going to be published, I believe by Wittenstock. Um, uh, it's an anthology with other scholars on the second temple literature period and how literature within the, within the second temple Judaism helps us understand the new Testament. So I'm writing a chapter on Josephus. Uh, in that particular chapter. And I think that'll be out next year, uh, I believe, or or maybe that's when the, my chapters do. I can't remember the, which, but that'll be out in the next coming years. Um, and until then, you know, I stay active with my church, Revolve Bible Church, teaching classes then and preaching where I can, when I can. And uh, we have the IFCA annual convention coming up um, this month. So I'll be one of the keynote speakers there. James is speaking as well in a seminar. We have some academic conferences always spread throughout the 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 year along with our teaching duties at SCS. So, you know, we like to stay pretty busy and um, not just teaching, but also writing, researching and publishing. Yeah, that's great. And uh, on behalf of the church, you know, thanks so much for contributing to our understanding and helping us think through these things. I think it's, it's very important to be uh, to be working through these kinds of issues with the kind of care and fidelity to doing good academic scholarship. So, you know, Corey Marsh, James Fazio, thanks so much for joining us on the Bible Sojourner. Thank you. Thanks, thanks Peter. Yeah. Us. Thank you for having us. Really appreciate it, brother. Well, a special thanks to Corey Marsh and James Fazio for joining us on today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the interview. I hope that it was stimulating and that your thought process was adequately charged to consider some of these things. If you're interested in buying their brand new book, which was released just today, June 1st, then you can access it in the link in the description. Uh, you can access it on Amazon and order it and get it in a couple days. And so I'll put the link there. You guys can access that. If you want more information about me or the podcast, you can visit petergaming.com. If you want more information on Shepherd's Theological Seminary, you can visit shepherds.edu. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.